chapter at the verse 14. Read down through to the end of the chapter then. Romans in the chapter 6, beginning our reading at the verse 14. The Word of God says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And ending our reading there. We come, of course, to consider once more these but now statements that are given to us in this book of Romans. And last week we said that these but now statements are crucial in our ability to more fully apply the truths that we are confronted with as we make our way through the chapters of this book. And as we come to them, they are, of course, both comforting but also challenging. And I trust that even as we've reflected on that which we considered last week, that our hearts have been comforted, but also that we have rose to the challenge of what God's Word shared and declared with us last Sunday morning. Undoubtedly, as we've made our way through this study already, you will have noticed that many of the themes are continually rehearsed. As we come to the different chapters, we see that God's Word reinforces the truths, the themes over and over again. And this, I believe, is by no mistake. And we choose our language carefully there because we identify this as a reinforcement of truth, not a repetition of truth. You see, repetition may be described as being the mother of all learning, but repetition is only ever that which repeats that which has been already said. But when it comes to reinforcing, when it comes to reinforcing all that we have come to consider through these chapters, we see that, yes, we have these things repeated to us, but we also have them developed as the Spirit of God continues to build upon that which He has already said. And that is the key difference. It's a key difference to our understanding of all that's going on in this book, because you and I might simply perceive that Paul is just trying to fill space, and so he repeats things over and over again, or we can, as the Spirit gives us insight, identify that which is truly going on, and that is, of course, that the apostle is being used of God to reinforce key doctrinal truth, truth that I don't need to miss, truth that you don't need to miss. 
But truth that also together we must grow in our knowledge of and indeed grow in our willingness and ability to apply. And so we come to the second but now statement. And we see then that the theme of the last but now statement is picked up and built upon. There's further development of all that we considered last week, but there's a new emphasis also that the Spirit of God is opening our hearts and minds to. This will be the pattern as we progress through these four button-eye statements. We'll see a rehearsal of that which we have already considered, but we'll see a new emphasis, a new thing to consider week by week as we come afresh to the Word of God. So last week we began with the button-eye of freedom. This week we come to the second but now, given there in the verse 22, this sixth chapter where it says, But now, being made free from sin, become servants to God, ye have fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. And the but now statement for this week is, But now, fruit. Fruit. Last week we considered freedom. This week we consider fruit. I want us to notice, firstly, as we reflect upon this passage of Scripture, our past. Our past. The Bible tells us that we were servants of sin. It's a point that Paul here continually and consistently makes in this portion of Scripture. We had a past. Consider there in verse 14, the beginning of it, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Immediately alerting us to this understanding, there was a time when sin did have dominion over us. Come to verse 18 and see there where he writes, being then made free from sin. And so that which once held us in dominion, held us in its control, held us in its power, we have been set free from. That's what we reflected on. That's the truth that we rehearsed last week. Come to verse 20, and it says, For when you were servants of sin, and so we're reminded not only were we held captive to it, but we willingly gave ourselves to its employ. Day after day, time after time, moment after moment, you and I once knew what it was to thirst after, lust after, and indeed continually be engaged in that which ran contrary to the revealed will of God. Then verse 22, but now being made free from sin, we're reminded once more, freedom, freedom from its power, but freedom also from its employ. Paul does this, I I believe, because of what he mentions there in verse 19. This was language that the people to whom he was writing were comfortable with. It was something that they knew the reality of. That's why he says there in verse 19, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. He's saying, I'm seeking to communicate great spiritual truth to you, but I'm using that which is an everyday reality. Many of those to whom he wrote, no doubt, knew servanthood. Knew, no doubt, what it was to be in the employ of a master. Knew, no doubt, what it was to be in slavery. There were those who were, no doubt, academically brilliant, but yet they were in slavery. We're led to believe that in the Roman times, there were many who were slaves and were held by a master, but they were gifted accountants, they were gifted philosophers, they were gifted educators, they had many academically talented people, but yet many people held in slavery. 
There was also the slavery and servanthood of a house. Those who embarked upon day after day the menial tasks of preparing meals, cleaning up, and ensuring that the master's house was well kept, that the master himself and his family had everything they had the need of. And there were others then who were in servanthood, or indeed slavery, and they were given the very hardest of tasks in society. The Romans were a great people who advanced far beyond their own boundaries and geographical location. And as they advanced, they had a real emphasis and a goal to install roads, a network of roads would allow trade, commerce, and the population of people to flow unhindered right across the empire, right across that large swath of land that they controlled. And so many knew what it was to be employed, to be in the servanthood of those who were tasked with building these roads. So Paul's using all of this language and he's communicating to a people, a people who really had no opportunity to be free. Freedom from Roman slavery could only ever come about, first of all, if you could afford it. Or secondly, because the master simply shined upon you and decided to to simply liberate you from the obligation of slavery. And so, as he communicates this truth, using this terminology, yes, it's a little unknown to us. Yes, it's not something that we're perhaps even comfortable with. But nevertheless, this was the reality of those to whom he wrote. They couldn't change who they were. They couldn't change their immediate prospects in life. They were forever a slave. Paul is reminding us one and all, that was our past. We were held in bondage and captivity by Satan and by the works of the devil. We were those who day by day employed ourselves in fulfilling that which he desired, that which fitted his agenda. But now there's been a great transformation. But he says in verse 21, he reminds us that when it comes to the spiritual nature of all that he's writing about. The end of it was only ever death. Yes, in the physical sense, many who were in the employ of a master, those held in slavery and captivity, they too expected to die in such a condition. Paul's reminding us when we talk about that spiritual truth of our slavery and captivity to Satan, There's an even greater death that awaits those who remain in such a condition. The wages of sin, he ends this chapter by saying, is death. The Word of God reminds us, of course, that after death, the judgment. And so perhaps there's one amongst us today or one listening in, and you're still in that sin condition in which you were born. You're still held in bondage, captivity, and slavery by the devil. You still serve your master, Satan, Will you not come and hear that great freedom call in the gospel? That great truth that, yes, you can't change the reality of your spiritual condition, but there was one who came in the fullness of time, and he died a death to liberate you, to allow you to be free. You don't have to await that spiritual death. You can know right now as your present possession eternal spiritual life. So we see our past, but we move on then to our present, for that was our past, but now. 
We're continuing, of course, to build upon the theme that we began last week, that freedom. He says in verse 18, he says, Being then made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. And so that reality is our current understanding of where we stand before God. We're free from that captivity and that bondage of sin. We're free from its power, its dominion. We're free from its penalty. And one day, praise God, we will be free from its very presence. Paul reminds us that as we come to consider our present reality, as we come to rejoice in that but now of freedom, God be thanked. Verse 17, but God be thanked that ye who were the servants of sin, you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Well, as we come to reflect on our past and as we come now to consider our present, we must be careful at all times to lift our eyes heavenward. We must be careful at all times to rejoice in a God who has freed us from that bondage, freed us from that captivity, allowed that change to occur. Salvation here is described as a heart work, that which God wrots within. An obedience of the heart is first known, and then a change of the heart is evident in all that we do and in all that we say. And the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith, God, well, he that is the one then who deserves all the praise and the glory, for he is the one who sets us free. He is the one responsible for moving us from our past to our present. But then what? What is the raison d'etre for salvation? Is it to live as we please, safe in the knowledge that our sins of the past, our sins of the present, and our sins of the future are forever forgiven? That we are eternally declared righteous in the sight of God? Well, notice what Paul begins this chapter by saying. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And then come to verse 14 and he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. And today in the generation in which we live, there's a real battle when it comes to this understanding of how you and I should live in this world as we have known what it is to be set free from sin and to be liberated unto Christ. Many there be who say, well, we all feel. And so don't worry yourself or over-concern yourself about the activities you're involved in, the words that you say, the places that you go, because remember, you're under grace. God's forgiven your sin in Jesus' name. But such a belief runs contrary to Scripture. Such a belief is not how you and I should put into practice or implement the change that God has effected as God, as we thank God for that which He has done in our lives. It should then not be evident that we are still those who dabble with sin, those who perhaps consistently live in sin, 
Those who simply take it for granted that one day we'll be accepted before God. God forbid. The apostle here, I believe, is reminding us of this. Grace is now our motivator to do that which is pleasing in the sight of God. Grace is that which now motivates us and spurs us on to fulfill even that which He has commanded in His Word. And so very clearly today we say that we don't keep the law or we don't subscribe to the moral code of the law, or we don't look at the commands of God's Word and say, that's how we should live our lives, because that's the only way that we will know acceptance before God. No. But when it comes to the things that are laid down in God's Word, those principles and those guidelines for life that are not only found in the law, the Old Testament law, but also further expounded and built upon in New Testament teaching, we say this, We don't fulfill those things. We don't subscribe to those things in order to be accepted before God. But because we are accepted before God, that's why we live a holy life. That's why we do that which is well-pleasing. I don't not commit murder because of what trouble I'll get into. I don't not commit murder or steal because of that which I believe God would frown upon. No, I, because I am a Christian, do not commit murder. Because I am a Christian, because my life has been changed, then I do what I can to live a life that testifies of that which is within. And so in doing, I will avoid that which brings dishonor to him and that which is closely aligned with the old sin nature. Now look how the Lord Jesus Christ expounded this, I believe, in Matthew's Gospel in the chapter 5. Matthew's Gospel in the chapter 5 is, of course, a Sermon on the Mount. Much of Old Testament teaching is taken and built upon to give New Testament believers, I uh, truly understand this passage to be, that which gives New Testament believers a greater understanding of all that God desires to be evident in their life. So in verse 41, I use this one verse for time's sake as a supreme example. Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. This is again a reference to a Roman law. Something that the Jew, something that those who knew what it was to be ruled over by the foreign government of Rome had to comply with. It's believed that upon the Roman road network there were mile markers. And thus, as a Roman citizen, and specifically those who held a prominent role in Roman society, perhaps a soldier, perhaps a government official, were making their way from one place to another. They were carrying their own luggage. They were carrying their own burdens. But there, as they made their journey, they spied someone who was a native of that land, someone whom their army had taken over and now held in control. Well, the law allowed them to approach such an individual and say unto them, here, here's my burden, here's my load. You take that, you carry that one mile. 
And that individual who was obligated then by Roman law to do so had to, without complaint, put that burden upon his back, put his hand to the cart, whatever the case may be, and push or carry that load for the distance of a mile. That's what the the law obligated him to do. And so in our mind's eye, we think of this, someone who begins here, and there they are struggling with the load, carrying the load, and as soon as they reach here, they simply drop it all. Their obligation's fulfilled. They've done that which the law requires. But this is not what the Lord is seeking to communicate those who would be followers of Him to do. This is not what I truly believe then the effects of salvation communicate to us to do. For the Lord says here, whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. And so when you reach that point, when you reach that point where the law has been fulfilled, where the obligation has been met, keep on going. Why? Because you're a believer. Because you're someone who is seeking to live differently, walk differently, speak differently even in the world in which you live. You're seeking by what you say and do to be an example of a true believer to communicate that effect of grace in your life and to live it out day by day in the things that you do. You think of the effect that that would have had. A Roman soldier, a Roman citizen trundling along behind that one who was a native of the country through which they were passing. And there as they reached that second mile, or that mile marker that uh, depicted the distance from which they had set off to the distance they had now reached, they expected, they anticipated that laying down of the load, that releasing themselves from obligation. But there, there, there would be that believer who just simply keeps on going. They do something different. They live a different way. They do not simply look at the law and feel obligated by it. No, but because they are a believer, they're seeking in everything that they do to stand out for Him. Is that how you live your life? Is that how I live my life? You and I would term it in our current vernacular, going over and above, above and beyond but is that how we conduct ourselves? It should be. Because we're not under the law, we're under grace. And as we truly reflect on all that God has done for us, as we truly reflect on that but now moment of our lives and the truth that we have been set free, then it should liberate us, free us, and motivate us on to even greater things, greater service for Him. That brings us then to our future. Because the but now is remember fruit. He says in Romans in the chapter 6, But now being made free, ye have your fruit. Fruit is that which God desires us to have in this life and that which is to come. You see, there it's fruits unto holiness that he identifies as being that which is the immediate, immediate reality of our fruit bearing. The eternal reward of our fruit bearing is everlasting life. Do you know that spiritual fruit can never be counterfeited? You'll never find a fraud when it comes to spiritual fruit. 
And so the Word of God challenges us today as we have experienced that but now moment of salvation and being set free. Are we fruit bearing Christians? Are we someone who is seeking day by day to live a life under holiness? John's Gospel in the chapter 15, we don't have time to go to it today, but we have Christ's teaching on fruit-bearing. We're reminded in that portion of Scripture that He is the source of fruit, the vine. His people, Christians, are those who bear the fruit. We know that, of course, because as we understand the circumstances of that passage and the time in which He delivers it, Judas has already gone out from the disciples. This is the eleven making their way with Christ from the upper room to Gethsemane. And so he's speaking to those who go on to be apostles. He's speaking to those who go on to play a prominent role in the establishment of the early New Testament church. And his teaching is this, bear fruit. Indeed, he goes on to say, more fruit, much fruit. That's God's desire for you and me. But also in that passage, we're reminded of the secret. Abiding in Him. So we come together around the Word of the Lord today and we ask ourselves, are we fruit-bearing Christians? Are we those who are fulfilling that which He desires in our lives, individually, corporately? Is there evidence because not only of the truth that we've been set free, but the outward then manifestation of what we're engaged in, what we're employed in, what our activities contain day by day, time after time? Is there evidence of the change of God because of the fruit that is born in our lives? Are you abiding in Him this morning? Someone who is enjoying the full benefit of being directly connected to Him. Of having in your possession His Word that you can learn from, that you can treasure and you can find and base your life upon. Are you availing of the access that you have to Him in prayer? Are you making use of that which He has given to us to thrive in our Christian lives? The ministry of the local church, the ordinances of the Lord's table and baptism. Are you doing that which allows fruit to be seen in your life? The process, we're reminded in John chapter 15, involves purging. And that's much more than a pruning that perhaps you and I engage in in the garden from time to time. The idea of the purging that Christ communicates in that chapter is all about a deep cleansing. Ensuring that every part is fit for purpose. I believe that in our lives that purging can only ever be accomplished through the Word of God. Christ it was who said, Sanctify them through thy word, thy word is truth. 
The psalmist said, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed thereto according to thy word? So in order for us to know the fulfillment of the process that God has ordained, in order that we might bring forth fruit in our lives, both individually and corporately, we must be people of His Word. We must be people who are in His Word time after time, day after day, not just coming on a Sunday and availing of this time of teaching and going in the power and the strength of that for the next six days. No, time after time, day after day, consistent on our own study, consistent on our own reading of the Word of God. We must work hard at bringing forth those fruits of character that Galatians refers to, the love, the joy, the peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. We must desire, as Paul desired, those fruits of service in Romans chapter 1 and verse 13. Seeing fruit come from all that we say and all that we do. Believer, this morning, are you a fruit-bearing Christian? That's the challenge of this but now statement. And as comforting as, as it is to know that we have been set free, that we are no longer slaves unto sin, that we have no longer been held in dominion and power, or we're no longer held in a dominion and power of sin. But now also reminds us that we are to be fruit-bearing. And truly, as God looks upon you, as God looks upon me today, does He see those who are producing that fruit for His glory? I pray that God will help us, even day by day, to live out that truth. Because you and I won't be able to overcome in all of the battles and all of the struggles until these truths make their way into everything that we say, everything that we do. And so we close this morning by singing together, Jesus, thy joy...